Bible Podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks for joining us for our next lesson in our series on the heart of Philippians with Adam Barnes. In today's lesson, Adam and his class will be discussing Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and they're going to be looking and seeing the humility of Christ and how we as believers should be emulating that humility. There's great practical application here as we all tend to lean towards pride, and yet Christ, our Savior and Messiah, was one who was humble in action. Well, thanks again for joining us for this lesson. We hope that you enjoy it. Okay, humility exemplified, and it's based on the first 11 verses of chapter 2. It's a pretty cool little insert, and I say it's an insert because it does deal in the flow of the passage from the the Philippians 1.27 through 30 towards the end of the first chapter. But it's also a little aside. He's kind of stepping to the side and giving this part before he gets right back into the argument in verse 12. So we chop this up into one section, like it's its own section. And it's really, really great because what we're going to see is one of the most, in my opinion, uh, neglected words in Scripture, especially the New Testament, which is humility. Uh, we hear talk, we, people talk about unity, and we see whole chapters of the Bible devoted to unity, but you, you can't have unity without humility. And so it's important to look at humility to understand what it is and what we do with it and how it applies to us directly. So let's look at the point. When a person places their faith in Jesus uh, Christ as Savior for eternal life, they're a new creation. You know that. But part, something a lot of people don't ask is what that means. What new things have come, what old things passed away. And what we'll see today is that part of being a new creation is having that new ability or that power to stop living for yourself. The chains of the flesh are broken. You can stop living for yourself and start living for Jesus. Before that, before you were a new creation, you couldn't even do that. You didn't have that ability. And you can start living for Jesus with other people in mind. Other people is going to be the buzzword for today. When the Holy Spirit places a believer into the body of Christ, he also gives them at least one spiritual gift by which to serve. And as we've clarified, that gift is for the body. It's for believers to serve the body, not their self. So when individuals faithfully carry out their ministry as a Christian and they're in harmony or in accord with the rest of the body, it grows and matures. However, as I just referenced, the prerequisite characteristic for this type of unity is humility. Humility. Paul clearly illustrates the epitome of humility by using Jesus' relationship with God the Father and humans as our example. We'll talk a little bit about what I mean by that. Jesus, without regarding his deity, is something that he should hold on to when he became a man, left the glories of heaven where he enjoyed perfect fellowship from eternity past with the Holy Spirit and God the Father, and became a man. He lived the will of the Father perfectly and then gave that life up for all of creation. So that's the point of what we're going to talk about today. And you look at that and it sounds good, but when you think about the implications for your life and for the world as a whole, it's super powerful. To be honest with you, I don't know if there's anything as powerful. So here's the outlining goals. We're going to do an introduction and review just really quickly. We're basically just going to read the passage. And then the next one's called Fill It Up. Paul says, make my joy complete. And so we're going to see what's going to fill it up for Paul. And then we're going to look at humility of mind. We're going to look at humility and exaltation exemplified in Jesus. In a summary, 
and we'll talk about the applications in the test. The goals for this lesson are to understand why Paul emphasizes unity and humility. Not just unity, but also humility. And to know what key element is necessary to maintain unity. Not to create it, but to maintain it. In order to maintain it, we have to have humility. We'll see that. To gain a biblical awareness of humility, we're going to spend a lot of time uh, in proof text tonight because I want you to understand what the Bible says. This is not Adam saying it. And I want to spend time putting together, gluing the different pieces of Scripture together that demonstrate the emphasis on unity and humility. Because like I said, I don't think it's taught. I think it's neglected, especially humility. So I want to go back to the Old Testament. I want to go back to Psalms and Proverbs. I want to go back to other Old Testament writers and see what we have written about humility and unity. And then I want to describe how you, not, not that I can describe, I want you to be able to describe how Jesus is a perfect example of humility. And then I want to understand the differences between worldly exaltation and godly exaltation. So to that end, I've wrote this question on the board, and I wanted to take just a minute to speak about it. But I know that we've done a like-similar list this semester, but what values or characteristics of people does our world, our society, or our culture exalt? What do they affirm? What do they promote? And I'm not talking about Christianity as, a, as an individual sect. I'm talking about the world as a whole. Hey, well... So that's huge. Wealth and money. What else? Health or kind of your, your body. Yeah, so I'm going to take that specific and I'm going to say a nice body or a good looking body. Yeah. Because I think that's, I think vanity is a part of it, a good body. Is there anything wrong with um, exercising? Or having a good body or caring about the way that you look? There can be. There can be. It all depends on the individual's modes. What are you doing? What are you sacrificing in order to have it? What does that matter? And I think Paige said a good thing. Uh, she called it vanity. Good looks slash body. If you don't think that our world values this, you are wrong. No one thinks that. I have a good relationship with a person on campus who has a position within a department that is high profile, and his job is to look at how branding and licensing and things like that of OSU matter. And so what the athletic department had to face this year was name, image, and likeness. They had to start paying their athletes for the use of their name, image, and likeness, and the athletes could make money off of it. Guess which ones immediately had the most uh, offers? The ones that were good looking and there was a girl. Fit. He told me that there was a girl on Instagram. You couldn't even tell she was an athlete, but because of the way she looked, she had the most followers. Because she had the most followers, she got a lucrative deal. Our society exalts, affirms, and promotes this. And really, what are we talking about here? Sex. Yeah. What else? Say status. So what do you mean by that? Um, like popularity, like if you're a movie star or... Um, popularity and 
Don't, the, don't, don't celebrities, don't we afford as a culture and a society and a world system, don't we afford these type of people a ton of leeway and give their opinion? Why is LeBron James giving an opinion on how we should run our country? He doesn't even have a high school education. He was passed through high school because of his basketball ability. He gets in the NBA because one of the best players ever, and all of a sudden he's shaping the minds of this next generation. That's because of his popularity and his power and his status. Because of what he can do, he's relevant. Same thing in my generation. It was bands. One of my favorite bands was Pearl Jam. They're political activists. And most of those guys, they have no exposure to the other side. They don't have an education. They don't have a lot of stuff that you would say, where are you getting that from? Or what's your motivation for saying what you're saying? And I'm even going to put this up here. What about education? Is that something that our culture or our society values? Yeah. I'm in higher education. I have my master's in higher education. And I'll just tell you flat out, this is one of the biggest lies of the devil. There's a lot of dumb, smart people out there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That, that's, that's true. And a lot of the stuff that they're spewing and a lot of stuff that they're teaching, both in secondary, elementary, higher education, postgraduate, it's garbage. They're less and less teaching people how to think and teaching them what to think. That's yeah. exactly right. That's exactly right. I would, and, it, and, and to be honest with you, anybody who listens to this that doesn't know me, and they know that I work in higher education, and that's what my degrees. It sounds stupid to them that I'm sitting here defaming what I make my living off of. But I will tell you, as somebody from the inside, and tell you from somebody who went through it as a student, and a pre I'm going to teach next year on campus. It's garbage. It is garbage with a capital G. Because the, uh, you're exactly right, Kevin. What they're learning is garbage. And they don't know or have the ability to tell the difference between something that's good and bad because they don't know how to think. Education should be teaching people how to critically think. And we don't get that in public education, public universities, even most private universities. Okay, good. What else? By the way, sorry, I'm why I'm on it. If that's true and you guys believe it and I know it and you know it, why do we do it? It's a tool for status and wealth and money. That's exactly right. First you get the power, then you get the money, then you get the girl. Isn't that what he says in Scarface? <laughs> it's exactly right. All right, so what else? What else do we promote? The whatever makes you feel good or whatever you think is right. Yes, okay, yeah, that's really good. So. Uh, self, mm -hmm. right? That's self-gratification. And we all have a part to play in that because we all have a self. Have you ever thought about, have you ever looked at the NFL quarterbacks? And not very many ugly ones. Why do you think that is? It's because in our culture and our society, when they're little kids, this stuff is already ingrained in them. And the tallest, best looking, most athletic one gets the ball shoved in their hand and says, you're the quarterback. 
because he's already leading little kids because of the way he looks, because of the way his body is, and because of his ability. So we get Tom Brady. We get Brett Favre. We get Troy Aikman. We get all these handsome, good-looking guys that are just doing what their culture's promoted them to do. They don't know any better. That's just who they are. Anyway, that's just a little side. But these are some of the things that our culture and our society promote. We exalt and we affirm it. We affirm it by buying into it, by clicking like, by watching it, by buying the products they promote. All of that stuff. And as Christians, we have to be cognizant and aware of what our actions, what our thoughts, what our words, all of that stuff. We need to be cognizant of the effect that, that has on the body around us the individuals who we influence, and our kids. It's, and to your point, there's nothing inherently wrong with any of that. Sex is good. God designed it. It's supposed to be good, but it's supposed to be used appropriately. Provision is good. There's nothing wrong with having money. Self-gratification, we'll skip that one. <laughs> we talked about education. There's nothing wrong with having a high position at work. There's nothing wrong with having a good title. There's nothing wrong with working hard and being promoted and having leadership over people. But your motivation behind that and what you do with it is what matters. Because what we're going to see today is that Christianity turns all this on its head. There's scripture that is going to teach us that if you want to be the greatest, you need to be the servant. If you want to be first, you need to be the last. If you want to be gratified eternally, gratify others. What we're going to see in this passage today stands in stark contrast to every single thing that our fallen world system promotes. So let's look at it. So we wrapped up the foundational elements of Philippians last week. We moved into the heart or the body of the letter once you get into like verse 27. And then most of what we're going to see from here on out, including today, is going to go back to one of the themes or elements that we've already covered, or what Paul has already introduced. So last week, Paul asked the Philippians to conduct themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you, or I remain absent, I'm going to hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Not just striving for the faith of the gospel. That is an individual responsibility, but you do it with other people. Participation, fellowship, all of those themes are in this verse. We strive together for the faith of the gospel. Strive together, by the way. And you'll see that you can't have unity in your togetherness without humility. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ... If there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, and if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, and intent on one person. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Where have we seen that before? We saw it in his, op his opposition. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Don't really look out for your own personal interests. Don't self-promote like his opposition was, but also for the interests of others. 
have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his equality with God a thing to be held onto or to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's everybody for all time, by the way. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To whose glory? To the glory of God the Father. All right. So Paul begins a summary statement here at the beginning of chapter 2. We know it's a summary statement because it starts with therefore. He says, therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Anytime that Paul starts making a list, pay attention. He does this a lot. You get the fruit of the Spirit. You get the deeds of the flesh. In Colossians 3, you get a list of things that keep unity. Any time that he starts making a list, pay very close attention to the specific words that he's using. Because our English language, or the way that we interpret it, uh, will sometimes cause us to gloss over the heart of what he's saying. And a lot of times what he's doing is he'll give these individual words, fellowship of the Spirit, intent on one person. They mean something individually, but as a whole, he's painting one picture that all of those things fall into. And we're going to see today that those things are humility and unity. So he says, if, if there are these things. You hear JB talk about the three classes of ifs in Greek. These are all first class conditions, which means that you can translate it since. Since there is encouragement of Christ, since there is consolation of love, since there is fellowship of the Spirit, since there is affection and compassion. So let's talk about what these are. Like I said, remember, a lot of times it doesn't translate. The words that he uses, sometimes we get weird translations, and that affects our meaning of the passage. So let's talk specifically about what he means. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, this is paraklesis. It means to call beside. Para is always with or beside. To call beside. Think of an urging on or a pleading or somebody who's giving motivating words. Is there any urging in Christ? Is there any pleading for, for Christians? There is. I wrote some of these down here. He urges. He says the same word in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. He urges them. I urge you by the mercies of God. I paraclesis to present your bodies a living holy sacrifice. There's encouragement. Once you have eternal life, the game's not over. It just started. What are you going to do with it? So he says in Ephesians 4, 1. Walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called. 2 Corinthians 5.20. He says we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal or he's encouraging you to be reconciled to God. That's for unbelievers. We've been given that ministry to take and urge unbelievers to be reconciled to God. So there is encouragement in Christ. There's motivation in that for us to do. We're supposed to take these things and be motivated to do something with it. If there's any consolation of love, this is paramutheon. This has to think. This means like think, uh, comforting words in love. So you think about somebody who, uh, 
you, you want to encourage them, or you want to stir them up, and you're giving them comforting words. Hey, it's okay. You know, it's all right. Or hey, you did a really good job at this. Or you're really good at this. Or it's in love. If there's any consolation of love, that's the same word he uses in Matthew 28, 20, Hebrews 13, 5, John 5, 24. And the next one is fellowship of spirit. We've already covered that one this year. Fellowship is koinonia, and that's participation or partnership. If there's any fellowship of spirit, do we have fellowship of spirit as Christians? We do. We're supposed to walk by the spirit so that we don't obey the lusts of the flesh. Uh, there's fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things are fruit of the Spirit, but that's the one Spirit that we've all been called to walk in. All those one another's. All the one another's. Yeah, yeah. And so that's that's a good point. I should have made that point this week. Uh, but I haven't. I wasn't around for when he did that one another study. But you're exactly right, because I told you that one of our buzzwords this week is other people. Because keep in mind, all of this stuff has to do with unity. And fellowship of the Spirit and being of one mind means being in the Spirit. Being unified in the Spirit and by the Spirit. And then we have affection and compassion. So this is inner, this is guttural feelings of intense passion or love for somebody or sensitivity. Um, really the only thing that I have to compare this with is brandy. Like, when we were dating, I had this, like, stomach-turning desire to be with her, to be around her. Uh, what I thought and what I felt matched, it was almost painful to be with her. And it, definitely, it was painful to be apart from her. When we started our relationship, I was in Louisville, Kentucky at seminary, and she was here in Stillwater. It was hard, hard, hard to be away from her. And so we're supposed to have that type of affection and compassion for the body where we long to be with them. I'm going through it right now because I'm living in Hennessy and I hate it. I hate, hate, hate it because I'm apart from the body. I'm apart from the people that I love, the people that I want to be around, do things with. I went from what I thought was true fellowship to like being way out in the middle of nowhere. That's hard for me. Paul says, make my joy complete. And I don't want you to think of this word complete as here is until like finish a puzzle, like putting the last piece in or to finish a race or something like that. But he's talking about feeling, filling. Like if I say feel correctly, he's talking about filling up his capacity for joy. Think of it this way. If Paul had a container or a tank inside of him that held his joy, he's saying fill that sucker up. And since there is motivation, since there is comfort, since there is participation, since there is intense love in Christ, then fill my capacity for joy by what? What does he say? What does he say is going to fill his capacity for joy here? There's four things. Be of the same mind. That's number one. Be of the same mind. Having the same love. United in spirit and intent on one purpose. So these four things, that's why I asked you the frame of reference question or the frame of mind question. For you to say, what would make you the most happy? A couple of years ago, I don't know if Dave might have been in there, and we did a study on Paul, and because of what Paul's values were, Paul was mission-focused. 
He knew what his goal and purpose was. He knew what his mission was, and everything in his life went to support that. What about you? What about me? What would make you the most happy? What would fulfill you the most? What would fill your capacity for joy if it were to come to pass? For Paul, all he wanted was for the church that he was building in partnership with Jesus Christ to be unified. To have one mind, one purpose, intent on the gospel. He says that that would literally fill his joy. His capacity for joy would be at the maximum if his mission were accomplished. So when you think about for your life, what would make you the most happy? Really, that's your value. That's your number one value. What do you value the most? And do your words, your actions, your decisions, do they have integrity towards that mission and towards that purpose? Because Paul's did. Well, a lot of times I think people are mistaken about what they think will bring them mm-hmm. happiness and fulfillment. So you can't necessarily go by what you think or you true. feel. That's true. Will give you the result you want. That's true. Uh, you can go by what God says will fulfill you and make you happy. If you trust Him enough to believe when He says, if you do this, you'll be happy and fulfilled. If you trust Him enough to do it, I think you'll find out that He's right. Too often I try to pursue what I think will make me happy and fulfilled and I'm mistaken in my thinking. That's the whole purpose of the frame of mind exercise, Kevin, is to make people ask, answer that question. Because enough people don't self-evaluate, and enough people don't think about what they value or what matters to them. And so even if they answer it wrong, the goal is to get people thinking about it. Because who hasn't, who hasn't been motivated by money and wealth? Who hasn't made actions and decisions and sacrifices of good things for the bad things? Who hasn't cared about this? Who hasn't cared about this? All of these things on the board that we talk about have been things that people value. And that's why when we talk still water Bible, we often say that there are only certain things that are eternal. God's eternal and our relationship with him is eternal. People are eternal. Our relationships are eternal. And when he says in Colossians 2, to set your mind on the things above and not on earthly things, that's why. This stuff is fleeting. It goes away. It passes. At the end of the day, none of this is going to be left. The stuff that's going to be left are people and your relationship with God. So that's what your work here on earth should be focused on. That's what you should value. Because that's the stuff that's going to matter at the end of the day. So since there is motivation, all that stuff, he says, by being of the same mind or thinking, that's a cognitive, like that's in your mind, and your feelings, that's the visceral, that's the guttural feeling. So specifically, we're going to talk about two things that we need to be of the same mind about. Number one is doctrine. Because guess what? Not long after Paul gave these messages and set up these churches, Satan's already at work splitting them up. Galatians is not a participation letter. That's a get it together letter. That's a, I just came to you and gave you the right message and now some guys are coming in from behind me giving you the false message and you're already deserting the good stuff and taking on the bad stuff. 
Stop that. What if that wouldn't have ever happened? What if there was one unified church? What if we didn't have denominations? What if we were, what if we all had the same doctrine, the same understanding of how things work? Think about how powerful it would be. But we let all this other garbage get in the way and cloud that. So our doctrine, we know that the Bible, everything that we believe as Christianity, as Christians, goes back to the Bible. We see that in 2 Timothy that it's profitable. It has value. And it's good for teaching, for training, for correction, all of those things. 2 Timothy 2.15 is where most people fall short in today's Christian life or society. I told you last week I'm listening to this podcast about Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And one of the deacons or elders that he fired and kind of threw under the bus, he posted, he created his own website in the midst of all this and posted a timeline. And so I went on there and looked because I was so interested in what these guys were having to do to be elders. And the list was ridiculous. But not one thing about the Bible. It was read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. It was read one of Mark Driscoll's books. Read this other guy's book. Tell me what you think about this. Not one thing did it say about the Bible. Did it ask about the qualifications as written in Scripture, about what those what the qualifications of elders and deacons are. And people, so my, my point is, is that people don't rightly divide the word of truth. They take things like the kenosis passage that we're going to talk about today out of context without talking about participation, without talking about unity, without talking about humility, and they want to make it about God's deity or his humanity and who, what this really says about who Jesus was. That's, you missed the point. That's not rightly dividing the word of truth. Hebrews 4.12 says that that's what we filter everything to. It's able to judge your thoughts and intentions. So our doctrine is something that we should be of the same mind. Back then, there wasn't that much. There was Judaism, and then there was the fulfillment of Judaism, which was the way that we now call Christianity. And then Satan was already at work trying to distort that. And today, we have, I don't even know how many <coughs> denominations. The next thing is purpose. We have to be of the same purpose. And I, I mentioned it last week, and I kind of put my foot down and said, we, we have to stop getting frustrated about hearing the purpose planning process of the church because the purpose matters. Because it's not just the purpose of the church, it's also your individual purpose. It's your individual commission. You are an ambassador of Christ, and you're supposed to go and make disciples to evangelize unbelievers and to train and equip believers. You're supposed to be conformed to the image of Christ. And the other part is corporately. As a body, we have a mission. We have a purpose to make disciples, to grow the body. The next thing that he says, number two, is to have or maintain is really what he's talking about. He says maintain the same love. And I think literally what he's getting at is that you possess. You possess the same love. And what I put here is that love is a decision always. Love is always a decision when it comes to biblical love. It's a theme about this that we're going to find out later today. Just like anything else that's in your brain, anything else that's in your mind, it's going to manifest itself in action. When you make a decision to love somebody, it's going to manifest in your actions, how you treat them, how you interact and engage with them. All that stuff matters. Colossians 3.14, we're actually going to look at this entire passage here in a little bit, but he says, love is the perfect bond of unity. 
Ephesians 5, 1, it says, Be imitators of God's beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you. Well, how did he love us? He was sacrificial. He loved us. He was determined. All of those things. The third thing is united in one spirit. This is literally together in soul. Together in soul. We are called to preserve unity, as it says in Ephesians 4. We are called to preserve unity. That's what Paul's getting at. Make my joy complete. Fill it up. What's going to fill it up? What is going to make me feel the most joyous about everything in my life? Is that if you guys are walking in unity, if you guys have one purpose, one focus, that's what he says next, that you think the same thing. You have one purpose. You have one purpose, and we've already talked about it. We know what our purpose is, is to make disciples, and that's not just individually, but corporately. Paul's saying that the Philippians could do nothing more to make him happier than or joyful than to unite in love towards one another for the purpose of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That one purpose is the proclamation, as Paige said, proclamation to proclaim Jesus Christ. Remember. Remember his opponents in chapter 1? Some are even pre- preaching Christ from envy and strife. Some from goodwill. The latter do that I love, know that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress from my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Even though these guys were doing, they were preaching against him, they were trying to push him down while they built themselves up. Paul says at the end, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, which is that's them, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed because that was his goal. That was his one purpose that he wants the body to unite around. Even if there are people doing I, I resisted or refrained just because I'm so influenced by that podcast and listen to right now that it made me it made me think that this doctrine of unity can be used by people in power to exploit or it exposes them to exploitation of this truth. Because anybody who stands up or has an alternate thought or an alternate opinion or something that goes against what leadership says, then that can be abused and exploited by the people in leadership to say you are disrupting unity. You're causing dissension. You're creating factions. So it's important that we rightly divide and understand that unity is important, but sometimes unity means confrontation. Sometimes it means having a loving conversation with somebody to bring about a change. Sometimes it means church discipline to maintain unity. It doesn't mean that you can't question, but it does mean that it has to, unity has to be biblically based. It has to be focused in love, rooted in ground in love. So I just wanted to, we're not going to talk any more about it, but it is important uh, that we understand that, that unity can be exploited by evil or wrong leadership. Okay, 6.4, humility of mind. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. This is a great command, by the way. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. So now, after stressing unity and like-mindedness, both in verse 27 
of chapter one and now in chapter two, he's beginning to tie in together the point of every single thing that he's written so far. He gives a commandment to avoid an attitude or a mindset of that like his opponents, but in humility to regard others as more important than we do ourselves. This is one of the hardest things in Scripture because it stands against this, against self-gratification. That's natural. It is 100% natural for you to look out for yourself. It is 100% natural to protect yourself. It is 100% natural for every single person who's ever walked the face of the earth to look out for number one. And this verse says not to do that. That's hard. It's hard to consider one another as more important than yourself. This is spiritual maturity. That's what he's talking about. Satan's propaganda, and I, I, really, I, I didn't make this a teacher's note because I wanted it in your thing because it's so true. Satan's propaganda within the fallen world system is that the more powerful, wealthy, attractive, talented, educated, or well-spoken that you are, the more that you should be desired, emulated, esteemed, promoted, and supported. You guys agree with that? Why is it like that? It's like that because we're falling and because Satan's winning. But the fact of the matter is that the truth of Scripture stands in stark contrast to this ideology. This is the exact point that Paul's going to use to make error that he's going to make in this passage. And he uses Jesus Christ as a perfect example because the directive here is boldly stated and very straightforward. That with humility of mind, with humility of mind, we are supposed to regard one another as more important than ourselves. That is the hardest thing in the world to do. And it stresses me out. It does. It stresses me out because I don't know how often I do it. And I'm always almost to the point of obsessing about whether or not I'm doing this right. Because what do you I mean? It almost, you know, I always draw to the, you guys know, I've told you before, I'm a bottom line type of guy. I'm always like, okay, i got to pack it all in and go become a missionary. <laughs> That's where my mind immediately goes. If I'm supposed to consider others more important than myself and I don't want to be drawn in by popularity, power, wealth, money, any of this other stuff, then, and I'm supposed to live for others, i got to pack it in. But the fact of the matter is, and J.B. said this to me one time, you have a tremendous opportunity wherever you're at and whatever you're doing to make that your mission field. I didn't understand what he meant. I was brand new to this church. He was like, you're on campus. Think about all the people you're around. I was like, I don't know. who cares how many people are around? I don't know what to say to them. I don't have to engage them. But the fact of the matter is that our mission field is around us. You don't have to go to Africa. It's good that if we want to, you don't have to go to Asia. You don't have to go... United States needs good people. United Stillwater needs good people. Your neighborhood needs good people. Your block needs good people. And they need to hear the gospel message. So with humility of mind, we're supposed to regard one another as more important. And the Greek to regard here in this sense carries the idea that your priority should be others, especially in the body. And to consider or think of them as superior. The word there actually means that you're thinking of them as superior than yourself. And then we've talked about the negative and positive of his contrast when he uses the word but. He does it again here. Notice, again, Paul uses the, a contrast to demonstrate and emphasize his point. We are given negative motivations to avoid and positive motivations to embrace. He says, do nothing for self-promotion. 
That's the same word they use in chapter one to talk about those guys who are doing political things to raise them up, to exalt themselves and hold somebody else down. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do anything from self-promotion. Then the contrast, but through humility, regard others as more important. Don't do this, but do this. He, you always see Paul's emphasis when he does a comparison or a contrast like this. Don't do anything for selfish ambition or empty conceit or self-promotion, but to humility, regard others as more important. This was a really, really, really fun study for me. There are three things here that I want to talk about. Because as I mentioned, and I'm going to keep saying it until we know it so well that we start teaching it to people. Humility is neglected from the pulpit. It's neglected in books. It's neglected in writing. So I want to bring it to the forefront. It's funny to talk about humility and say we're going to exalt it. It's a conundrum. But number one, the first thing I want to spend some time examining is that humility comes before exaltation. Humility before exaltation. You hear sometimes people say cross before the crown. It's exactly what they're talking about. And that's not just for Jesus. And it's not just humiliated as in terms of embarrassment or even life or death. Humility before exaltation. Look what he says in Proverbs 29, 23. I kept it general and then we're going to get more specific as we go down. Pride rings low. That's this, looking out for yourself, self-gratification. Pride rings low, but a humble spirit obtains honor. That's exalt. That's being exalted. Psalm 138.6, Though the Lord is on high, he attends to the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. The emphasis there is that he's paying attention to the lowly, to the humble, and he's not regarding the people who are from afar, or the, the proud. In Hannah's prayer of thanksgiving, after God gives her Samuel, she said, The Lord humbles, and the Lord exalts. So here's a great idea, or an introduction to an idea. Who humbles? He can. The Lord humbles. The Lord exalts. Okay. Got it on the board. We'll talk about it in a minute. Mary's song. Same thing. He brings down rulers, but he exalts the humble. Again, it's the Lord bringing people down and exalting people. Second Chronicles, he's talking to Solomon about his rule in Israel. And he gives him a conditional. He gives him conditions. He says, I'm going to bless if you humble yourselves before me and obey me and do what I've told you to do. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to exalt you. But if you don't and you ignore me, and vis-a-vis, if you're ignoring God, it's because you're exalting yourself. There's going to be punishment. And what does Solomon do? After Solomon, the kingdom splits because he didn't take care of business. Luke 14, 11, parable of the guests. Everyone who exalts themselves... Wait, who's doing the exalting? Themselves. 
man exalts everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted who does the exalting God does based on what If you, if who does it? If you humble yourself. Do we humble others, or do we humble ourselves? We humble ourselves, or we should, because if you don't, somebody will. He will. If you're a believer, you don't want that. We'll see it. He's talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. Whoever exalts themselves will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See the exact same things in the parable of the guests. Look what James, Jesus' half brother, writes when he contrasts pride and humility, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud. He stands in opposition to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Not to man. You submit to God. What's one word for submitting to God? Humility. You can also say obedience. But you obey by humbling yourself. 1 Peter 5, 5 through 6, this is talking about young men and deacons. It's really after the qualifications for uh, elders. He's talking, he's telling elders what to do. But then he, he addresses these younger men who are elders. He says, you younger men, be subject to your elders. And all of you, clothe yourselves with humility to one another. Put on humility. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's all of you, not just the young men. He starts out by saying, Here's what the elders are going to do. Young man, you be subject to your elders. Then he says to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Again, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, summary statement, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Who does God exalt? Always. God exalts the humble. And then we're going to about to get here just a second to ultimate exaltation because Jesus is going to humble himself in obedience to the Father's will. And then guess what? Because he did it, he's going to get the ultimate exaltation. And that's what Paul's talking about right now. Number two is serving others. You say, what in the world does serving others have to do with humility? What does it have to do with unity? We've already covered in this class that you have a gift, a spiritual gift, at least one, so that you can serve others. And when you serve others, effectively, the body is more effective. It grows. But look what Jesus says. Remember the sons of Zebedee, James and John. Their mom comes and says, Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? Let, one of, let each of my sons sit at your right and his left. And all the, all the other ten disciples got mad. They got indignant, is what it says, towards him. 
But Jesus says, whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. I'm getting humbled. Okay. As a parent. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Who's exalted? Who's humbled and who's who, who and who's exalted? Who becomes great? The slave. The, the slave, the one who's the least is exalted. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Galatians 5.13, we have freedom to serve and freedom to love. He says, you're called to freedom. Just don't let your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh. All those things were fleshly. Your body, your sex, your money, power, wealth, self-gratification. Don't let, you're called to freedom. Just don't let your freedom turn into an opportunity for the flesh. When J.B. says you have the freedom to make wise choices, this is what he's saying. Are you free? Yeah. What are you free to do? Make wise choices. Which means setting aside your flesh and walking by the Spirit. Really what it's talking about is serving others. That's what it says. You're called to freedom. Just don't turn your freedom into an opportunity to the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in just one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're free to serve. You are free. You're just free to serve. Second Corinthians 4, 5, he's depending his apostleship. He says, we don't come to preach ourselves, but we preach Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as what? As your bond servants. He's saying, I'm doing this for you guys, but I'm really doing it for Jesus. I'm just doing it for you because that's what I was commissioned to do. I'm your bond servant because God told me to be, Jesus told me to do it, and I'm doing it for his sake because he's going to get glorified if, he, if I'm successful. Same thing, 1 Corinthians 9.19. He goes, For though I'm free from all men, I don't know anybody anything. I don't have to be under the law to Jews. I don't have to be a Gentile. I'm free. The law of love is free. He says, Even though I'm free from all men, I've made myself a slave to all. Why? So that I can win more men. I serve people so that I can be effective in my ministry. So service has a lot to do with humility. And humility has a lot to do with unity. Three, your mindset, because he says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ. He says, have this attitude for, what does the exact passage say? I'm going to go back and read it. With humility of mind, he says, don't do anything for selfishness or empty conceit. With humility of mind, not just action, Action comes when your mind is right. Your actions are a manifestation of what's in your heart, what's in your mind. Mindset affects attitude and behavior. What is in your heart is what's going to come out in your attitude, and it's what's going to come out in your behavior. And I'm going to prove it to you. Look what he says in Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart. Watch what goes in. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Whatever's in your heart is going to come out in your life. Same thing in Luke 6.45. What comes out? The good person, out of the good treasure of his heart, brings forth what is good. This is Jesus, by the way. 
And the evil person, out of the evil treasure, brings forth what is evil. For his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Fill it up. Fill it up with the good stuff. Walk by the Spirit. Have the appropriate mindset. Understand your purpose. Understand your mission. Make sure that everything that is about that is integrity filled in your life. Because if it is, then it's going to manifest in your actions and your behavior. Put on a loving mindset. Paul's always, JB, I think, talked about this this week when he talked about putting on the garments and taking them off. Put on love. That's what he's saying here. Put on love. Look at this great passage on unity in the Christian life. So those who have been chosen by God, who's been chosen by God? All believers. No matter what your doctrine is, all believers have been chosen by God. Holy and beloved, that's sanctification. Remember? Set apart or holy, being made holy, that's sanctified. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. What are all those? They're all fruit of the Spirit. Bearing with one another. Forgive. When you bear one another, are you unified? When you forgive each other, does that promote unity? Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all of this, all this is good. The fruit of the Spirit's good. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness. All these things I just mentioned are good, but beyond all these things, put on love because it's the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, plural, the body to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful for one another. Be thankful for everything that's happened. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, to God the Father. I love that. We see here that we are to do nothing for selfish ambition and for contention, but with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than yourself. All right, humility and exaltation exemplified. This is Jesus. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard his equality with God a thing to be grasped. That word grasped, that means held on to. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made just like you and me in the likeness of you. And then being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, because he was humble, what happened? For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord of the glory of God the Father. So in this section, Paul provides support and justification for the humility commandment, from a few verses ago, by providing Jesus as Christ in actions as a perfect example of humility. And I mentioned it at the outset, but in this passage we see that Jesus emptied himself. This passage is known in theological study as the kenosis passage. The kenosis in the Greek refers to Christ limiting himself when he became a man. But wasn't it right at the end of the last chapter, maybe in the last paragraph, so Jesus, I mean, Paul was saying it, even if I am 
poured out as a drink offering along the service and sacrifice and service of your faith. I'm not sure if the Philippians would have connected those to the emptying himself with the drink offering part. But it seems like Paul may have had that still in his mind. Yeah, he, he could have. He, he hasn't said that yet. That's later. That's in chapter end of chapter yeah, two. Yeah, he's saying that you know, he's basically saying. Uh, it's part where he says, "Do all things without grumbling or disputing, so that you prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, and brother approached in the midst of a creeping, perverse generation, among whom would appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ, all have reason to glory, because I didn't run in vain or toil in vain." He goes, "But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all." And so, yeah, they—I don't know if they would have connected that, or not. I don't know if I'm going to connect that. Because I think that what he's looking at there is saying, um, man, do all the stuff, live the right way, show yourselves to be an example of this fallen and crooked and perverse generation. Be great at what you do, live the Christian life, draw people, so that when the judgment seat of Christ comes, I'll have reason to glory. Because I didn't run in vain. Remember, he saw them as his fruitful labor. He said, You guys weren't fruitful labor. You know, I'm here for your sake. To stay out in this flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue for your joy and progress in the faith. So there is fruitful labor. And then he says, but even if even if you don't do it, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering, even if it's wasted. So I don't know. I, I'll, I'll look at that and see. <coughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Something to think about for sure. Alright. So, yeah, okay. So the kenosis in the Greek refers to Jesus limiting himself when he became a man. So many articles and theses and even books are written on the passage debating what it meant for Jesus to empty himself. And while I think it's important to rightly divide the passage, as we mentioned earlier, I don't think it was Paul's intention, as I mentioned, to drop a theological bomb in the middle, a revolutionary bomb, by the way, if it is what some people say, in a part of the passage where he's dealing with Jesus' deity and humanity in the middle of a commandment on humility and unity. But what I do think it's clear is that from the context of this passage, the chapter and the book as a whole, it's clear that Paul is simply exemplifying Jesus' mindset, his attitude, and his obedience as a template for us. Because he says, have this attitude. Right after he's told us not to do anything from selfish ambition or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself, have this attitude in yourselves. Because it was also in Jesus. Although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard as a quality as a thing to be grasped or held on to. So, like Paul usually does, he's providing clarity for what it means to humble ourselves in this passage. We're told with humility of mind to regard one another as more important than ourselves. Jesus Christ is the perfect example of humility. He's the perfect example of humility. And that's why Paul uses him. Really, it's why he emphasizes humility to begin with through his obedience. Jesus was perfectly obedient to do the will of the Father. Just like with Israel, there's obedience, there's an exaltation. And number two is his sacrifice. Jesus is a perfect example of humility through his obedience and sacrifice. There's direct application for us. At the end of Ecclesiastes, he wrote Ecclesiastes. Solomon. Wisest man ever. Ecclesiastes is a pretty dark book if you really get down to the root of it. But how does he end it? Anybody know? At the, he says at the end. At the end, 
There's only a couple things to do. Obey God, fear God, keep his commandments. That's the wisest man who ever lived. He basically writes that entire book saying everything outside of a relationship with God is vanity, it's pointless, it's worthless. You can do all this stuff and it's just going to happen again. The next generations are going to forget it. There's a time for everything under the sun. Uh, I've tested it. I had all the riches. I could do whatever I want, and I did it. I put it all into practice, and at the end of the day, the only thing that's left is to fear God and obey, keep his commandments. That's wisdom. And Jesus was the same way. He obeyed God perfectly as his bondservant and did the will of the Father through obedience. In 1 Samuel 15, 22, I put that in there because these two things are directly applicable. Which is greater, by the way? Is it obedience or sacrifice? Isn't that interesting? That love is basically sacrifice and it's the greatest, yet obedience is it's better to obey. Now we're commanded to love, so by loving we're obeying. And in Jesus, in John 15, 13, greater love has none than this, that a man what? Lay down his love for us. He says there's nothing greater, but to still to obey is better and we're told to love. And Jesus was a perfect example of both obedience and sacrifice. So how was Jesus obedient? How was he in this Philippians 2, 5 through 11? The first thing is that he identified with humanity by becoming a man. A lot of people think about baptism as an identification. Did you know that Jesus identified with us? Jesus identified. We needed a man. If Jesus would have died as God, it wouldn't have been the same. Jesus needed to be a man to pay for man's sin. To be a perfect substitute, he needed to become a man. He did it. He identified with us by, he knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to go through what we go through because he did it. And he did it without sin, by the way. Number two, he took the form of a bond servant. It wasn't enough that he just became a man because he could have become a king. Right? Could he have set it up to where when he came, he became a king? He didn't, though. He humbled himself, ultimately, and became a slave to his father. And really for us. He took the form of a monster, and then he died a shameful death or a disgraceful death. It's not disgraceful hindsight for us. Thank God that he did it. And we know that he's exalted. But to his people, to the Jews... Cursed is every man who hangs on a tree. I think First Corinthians it is says that that was a stumbling block for them. It's part of the reason that they didn't believe. They stumbled over the fact that he was hung on a tree because every man who hangs on a tree is cursed. So from their perspective, it was a disgraceful death. Next, Jesus' faithfulness and his remember we focused on our earthly body last week. We're supposed to use our bodies. Jesus' faithfulness in his earthly body is a perfect picture of humility. Was it humbling for Jesus to take on a a human body? Yes, it was. He had enjoyed eternity past. With no beginning, as far back as we can fathom, he was in perfect fellowship and unity with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He created angels. He created man. And then like the passage in Hebrews says, we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Thank you, Jesus. So he humbled himself by becoming a man. He took an earthly body. And then he served God 
with his earthly body. You remember how we talked about putting our members into service as instruments of righteousness? Jesus 100% fulfilled that. He completed it. He did it. Three, he demonstrated true, pure, and complete love by sacrificing his earthly body. So he took it on, gave himself a body, he served his father with his body completely, and he demonstrated love in his body. That's the sacrifice and obedience again. And we know that after humility, obedience, and sacrifice comes exaltation. And that's what he says. Because of Jesus' complete work, his humble mindset and his actions, his obedient life and his satisfactory sacrifice, he is exalted above everything. In Ephesians it says that he put all things in subjection under his feet and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Everything is in subjection under his feet. In Matthew 28 he said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether rulers or dominions or authorities, and all things are in subjection under him. Everything is happens through him and for him. The big picture application is this. From Genesis 3.15, from the time that God promises a Messiah, that he promises a Redeemer, all the way through the four Gospels, Everything pointed towards the fulfillment of God's promises through the coming Messiah. That's what Paul's getting at. And then, from the resurrection, resurrection on, even now to the end of time, everything points back in subjection to the fulfilled promises of God through the risen Messiah. He bestowed on him the name which is above all names. The name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. What is that name? It's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. In summary, humility is a sign of spiritual maturity. It is. It's hard. It's not natural. It is literally supernatural. Because you have to walk by the Spirit, which not every person can do. Only believers can do it. And even then, it takes work. It takes practice to do that. Pride is the opposite of humility and inherently resides within every human being, both believers and unbelievers. It's natural to look out for yourself and to make decisions or to take actions that benefit you only. It's why we cry and why we throw fits as infants and toddlers. we got to get our food. we have to get comforted. We have to have our diaper changed. Whatever. It's why we fight with siblings and others as children. We want that toy. That's mine. I had it first. That's all me. That's all natural. And it's why we compete and why we compare as adults. Pick me. I'm better. That's what I wanted to say to the girls when I was in college. Pick me. I'm better. I got a job. I deserve this because I worked harder and because I'm smarter. I have bigger and better stuff. My kid's more intelligent. I make more money. Don't mess with me. I have more relationships with more powerful and more important people. These are all thoughts that people have consciously or subconsciously or sometimes just out, straight out in the open. However, we are supposed to imitate Jesus Christ's humility through encouraging, loving, affectionate, compassionate, like-mindedness with other believers. 
And nothing would make Paul more joyful for the believers to be like-minded and to maintain unity in the body through love. You can read the summaries, everything that we just talked about, but I want to get to the application because this is a little different. I give some specific application here. Number one, evaluate your mindset and motives by constantly and consistently. It should never end. You should always be keeping yourself in check and asking, do I regard others as more important than myself? And how are my decisions, actions, and words affecting others for the glory of God? Joyfully and purposefully, and by purposefully I mean proactively, like on purpose do this, consider others. There's some easy things. If you're in line, if you, need, if you need help, you need kickstarting, just let some people go afraid. That's considering other people is more important than yourselves. If you pull into the parking and you're both at this draw situation at a parking spot, let them have it. It's something easy, something small that you can do. Intentional and kind encouragement. That doesn't take anything. You can walk by somebody encouraging. Tell them how they've affected you positively. Tell them what they do good. That doesn't take any work. That's easy. Pray for them. Paul is a great example of someone who did that. That's an easy way to consider other people. Then there's considerate things. Things that you're going to need to go and do. It's less easy. If someone's hurt, sick, going through something, provide them with a meal. Our church is pretty good at that. There's provision, just like the Philippians provided for Paul and Paul for them. There's gifts. And there's a little bit of things that are hard, and that's the sacrificial things. This is stuff that's going to take your time, your effort, your energy, your will, your emotion, something you're going to have to proact- be proactive about. This is serving a person or people in the body. It's employing your spiritual gifts. That shouldn't be hard, but you need to identify it and then be motivated to do it. And that's giving up your desire for someone else. Next, as much as it depends on you, maintain unity and be at peace with all people. That's what it says in Romans 12. And some things, I wrote some things here that can help with this. I used to be, I used to think the world was against me. I used to think that people only thought bad things about me that they were out to get me. And then I remember where I saw somebody said or did something to trip that up in my mind. And I started looking at things as if people wanted good things for me, wanted the best for me. Even if it wasn't true, it changed my, it changed me. It may not be true. People may not like me. And that's okay. I've got thick skin. As much as it depends on me, I want to be at peace with all people. And I say, develop thick skin. Sometimes people are going to come after you. We've talked about you, about this already. If you're doing ministry, people are going to come after you. They're going to make it hard on you. Love them. Forgive them. That's what it says in Colossians. Resist exalting people for earthly reasons. This is hard because we all have that natural ability to want to do that. Leave the exalting to God. Something that's big is associated with the lowly. If you see people that have a disability, mental, physical, uh, whatever, not all people who have physical disabilities are lowly, that's not what I'm saying, but a lot of times those people get neglected, those people get avoided, those people get hurt hurt because of it. Associate with those people. They need it, to be honest with you. I told you I found that, that's one thing I loved in that parable of the dinner. Jesus says that exact thing. He says, associate with the lowly. He says, find people who are handicapped. Find people that nobody associates with. Find the blind and provide for them. Because if you provide for normal people, they're going to try to pay you back and you're going to get your reward in full. That's what he says. He said, if you do that for normal people, they're just going to try to feed you just like you fed them, then you'll have your reward. But these other people can't. They don't have the means to do it. 
So take care of them, you're going to get glorified. That's what he says. It's pretty cool. Understand that biblical humility is required before you, God will exalt you. By the way, we didn't really get, we didn't have time. But you don't want the Lord to humble you. That's the chastening. That's the wearing you out. You want to humble yourself so that he doesn't have to do that. And then if you're faithful to do that, he'll do the exalting. No matter how much it looks like man is in control of that, no matter how much it looks like a leader or leadership or your boss or whoever, they're not in control. No matter how much they think they are, no matter how much you think they are, the Lord is the one who exalts. He's the one who lifts up, both on this earth and in the earth. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us.